Hello, and welcome to Reed Scholars Live. I'm your host, Dr. Mary Fleming, and current president of Reed Scholars. I am joined today by Dr. McKinney Chisholm Straker, who is an assistant professor of emergency medicine at Mount Sinai, Brooklyn. She received her bachelor's degree in MD from Brown before returning to New York for residency at Mount Sinai Medical Center. She also completed an International Emergency Medicine Fellowship at Columbia, where she received her MPH. Dr. Chisholm Stryker is committed to the health of invisible populations, and her work focuses on human trafficking and transgender health in emergency settings. In addition, she's the co-founder of Heal Trafficking Incorporated. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. So how are you? You're in New York. How are things there as they've evolved over the summer? Um, I'm pretty all right in the grand scheme of things. Um, I will say updates to that bio. Uh, mm-hmm. I was recently promoted to associate professor. So hooray, that's been a summer development. And I am now at Mount Sinai, Queens. Um, okay. But it's the same system, it's the same health system. Um, and uh, yeah, I think the big thing now is I'm trying to figure out where, if anywhere, can I go on a vacation that I am taking because there may not be time for it, but I need it. Um, and there's not a lot of places I can go. I, uh, I saw an Alaskan resort I'd like to go to, but the resort requires Alaskan ID. Wow. So yeah, I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> <laughs> so these are my, these are my quote unquote big problems right now. So that's not so bad, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, and I, I, I feel you, I'm, I'm used to traveling a lot and with COVID it's kind of the I need to be cautious because we need to respect this, this thing that coronavirus is. Yeah. But it's also tomorrow's not promised, right? Because we know how things exactly. quickly change and trying to figure out how to balance both of those. It's a, yeah. a little tricky and working in self-care. So I definitely understand that dilemma. <laughs> yeah, it's been a little tough, but what are you going to do? <laughs> Here we are. This is you roll with it. Yeah. Um, so I thought we'd start with just a little bit about your journey, um, and if you could share with us why you chose emergency medicine, and then what led you to go on after that to the International Fellowship. Sure. Um, well, unlike I think many folks who go into medical school, I knew that I was going to be an emergency medicine physician, so I wasn't ever like, oh, I wonder if I'll be, or, or I'm choosing between these couple things. I specifically went to medical school for this. Um, I had early exposure in life uh, to the specialty. And for me, it, it was a job, frankly, that allowed me to in some way engage in social justice work using healthcare as a vehicle for social justice, um, given that the ethos of emergency medicine by law and by ultimately by practice, is that we see any and all comers, regardless of anything else. Um, So that was the initial, like, yes, this is home, Um, in addition to the fact that I sort of grew up in an ED. Um, (laughs) And um, then as I, you know, sort of was going through uh, medical school, I started an undergrad actually volunteering internationally, Mm -hmm. and that sort of naturally transitioned in medical school. And then, you know, by the time you're a resident, you actually have some skills, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you actually have some capacity to be of use. And um, so that was sort of the spiral of, oh, I can actually be useful in other places, even though I'm not, I haven't completed residency, but I did want to do that responsibly and ethically. 
Um, you know, just because you're not in the U.S. doesn't mean that it's ethical, moral, right, whatever the word of the day is, to go to another country and quote unquote practice exactly. on folks. And so it was important for me to, even in residency, you know, make sure that I'm under the um, under the guidance of what would be considered an attending in the U.S. Uh, and that I wasn't ever acting outside of my clinical scope or capacity. Um, and so as I did more and more of those experiences, frankly, mostly just doing clinical emergency medicine in other countries, I came to see sort of experientially what I think other folks were probably telling me, but I wasn't fully understanding, which is that is sort of Band-Aid work. Um, I, at the end of the day, feel good about myself, but it's not sustaining. sustaining it's not sustainable. It's not sustaining the people there. Um, it can't be sustained by them necessarily, depending on how it's implemented. And I wanted to be a part of processes and movements and actions that were by the people and for the people mm -hmm. and that they didn't need me. I could come be a part of it, but I was sort of extra right. um, or that I was offering, you know, an expertise that was only actually needed for a short term, you know, from a research endeavor or something like that. Um, and so that's how I ended up doing that fellowship. I like it. And so I guess the, the next question, trying to figure out which one I want to ask first. So of course <laughs> I want to I talk about human trafficking and, and how um, that evolved for you. Um, but I also want to talk about what human trafficking is. And so I think um, what was poignant for me is when in the modern day, this was several years ago, but when we recontextualize, you know, the mm. slave trade and how slavery, um, using that as a context or comparison, I guess, if you will, to the modern human mm -hmm. trafficking. And I know for a lot of people, when they think about human trafficking, we also think, we often think about the sex exploitation arm of it, but it's much bigger and broader yeah. than that. Um, so I guess, however you want to weave those two questions <laughs> together, I'll just throw it out there and let you. Okay. That's, that's a, that's good. That's fair. <laughs> I will, I think I'll try to do both at the same time because okay. in learning the definition of human trafficking, that is how I got involved, right? In the anti-trafficking movement. Um, I don't know, to be honest, that before trafficking, like getting involved in the anti-trafficking movement, I had a clear understanding or even, mm. even an idea that I thought I could say or articulate that was incorrect about trafficking, just that I was like, oh, that sounds awful and I'm not gonna do it to someone. Like that was the best that I thought I could do, um, which is probably like the minimum, right? Like that everyone should be engaged in, just don't do that. Um, but what is that? Um, and so I, like most people, am motivated by food and went to a lunchtime talk um, in like the first few weeks really of medical school. And, um, learned a bit just very basically that emergency medicine, which I knew I was going into, um, is, you know, what they call on the front lines of seeing people or interacting with folks who have a trafficking experience. And so I was like, at the end of the talk, I was like, well, what do I need to do to make sure that my specialty is better at this and blah, blah, blah. Like I was ready, raring to go. Uh, because again, understanding for me that ethos that emergency medicine is for all comers. If that means that everyone's coming, but they're coming, but we're not taking care of them. That means that we're failing. It's on our side. How do we do better? Um, and I was tasked then um, by the speaker with educating my colleagues who, they weren't my colleagues yet. I was a first year medical student. 
they they would one day be my colleagues. Um, <laughs> they're my colleagues in spirit, right? So um, I understood based on that that tasking that my first real task then before you can educate others, you have to educate yourself, right? So I spent two years going to conferences, listening to survivors, reading, talking to law enforcement agents, um, working with advocates, just you know trying to get whatever information I could get in any way I could get it. All the while sharing that along the way with, you know, in-spirit colleagues who are attendings and residents and PAs. And what I have learned over the course of, of these 15 years now um, boils down to very simply the easiest way I think for folks to think about it is that one person or group of people, their work in whatever capacity that work takes, whatever shape that, that, that forms, their work is exploited for the profit of another person. Mm -hmm. And the person who is being exploited may or may not be aware that there's even this thing called trafficking, but they are aware that they can't leave their situation because of force, fraud, or coercion. They may not use those words, but if you ask them, why, why wouldn't you leave that situation? Why didn't you leave? They wouldn't say necessarily something as simple as what I would say, about why don't you leave your job is like, well, how am I going to pay rent, right? That's an, right. it's a very clear, like, well, you could get another job then. But something might be more like, well, this person is the parent of my children and they're, they hold all the money. And if I go, they said that they would tell the authorities X, Y, Z, and I'd never see my kids again, right? That's coercive. Or if I, if I decide to leave and say something, I'm on an H2 visa, I'll get deported and going back to my gang-ridden country of wherever isn't safer. I won't be able to provide for my family, X, Y, Z. So there's factors that aren't simply, I will be unemployed if I you know, leave this job. Um, so that's what trafficking is. It is labor and sex trafficking. As you pointed out, I think most folks um, focus on one of those. The majority of trafficking worldwide, according to our best understanding at this point, is labor trafficking. Mm which makes sense, right? We're all participating in a labor economy, either as consumers, um, as buyers, as sellers, whatever. Um, so it makes more sense that the majority of it is takes that form of labor. And it can be in, I should point out, in legal and illicit industries. So mm -hmm. just because something isn't a job that you could put on your CV and not have you know, the police arrest you for, doesn't make it not a trafficking situation. So I've taken care of and served folks who were forced to shoplift and have those items be resold. The crime of shoplifting is a crime. Right. It's also how they were forced to stay in that situation because they were told, well, if you say anything, you're the one who's going to get arrested. No one's going to believe you. And then I get the kids. So yeah, it's, I think when we start to, when we start to like see those little cracks in our understanding of what trafficking is, it's not, I don't want to like make it out to be this bigger than it is thing, but right. you see the possibility for it in every industry. And, and you're very intentional about using the word invisible, right? Population. Yes. Um, be, and, I, and I think you touched on it a bit um, when we're defining what human trafficking is, that it can be right in front of your face. Like it's not something that's behind the closed door. You got to go down the street and around the corner and through, you know, four closed locked doors. This is, right. could be, you know, the person who's sitting across from you at the dinner table or waiting on you at your, you know, dinner or what yes. have you. Um, so my question, I guess my next question is how do we encourage 
both clinicians and everyday people um, to, to what you know, to your point to see what might mm. be happening um, in plain sight. I think one of the simplest ways is some very basic reading. At this point, the internet has made so much information so available to all of us. Um, I think the, the first thing you really do have to do is be willing, though, to hear that, that this is a thing, and that, frankly, you're involved in it because, you know, I'm trying to not be, but I live in a labor economy, and the one that we have built at a global level is tough. I mean, I think folks will probably remember, well, folks of a certain age, we will remember, <laughs> um, you know, in the 90s when a certain athletic brand was outed as, you know, having quote unquote sweatshops in other countries. And that was around the time of our beginning to, you know, outsource a lot of, you know, sort of lower wage jobs out of the U.S., that you know, college campuses around the country were up in arms. Student activists were like, we do not want our university, our college apparel coming from this uh, brand until they fix their ways, right? And that was, I think, thinking about conceptualizing it that way and realizing, oh, I see how I could be participating. Um, and then you know, choosing to use the resources that are available to us. So um, it, when I was in medical school, uh, I worked with a team of folks. We developed a website for emergency medicine clinicians. That content is relevant, I would say, to all clinicians. Mm -hmm. But in particular, I was talking to my people in the ED. Um, but they can go onto this website. It's humantraffickinged.org. So human trafficking emergency department, but just ed.org. Um, and learn about trafficking, yes. But also, what do you do? How do you recognize the signs? What are the actions that you do or don't take clinically in that moment? Um, what's the best um, evidence-based medicine that you can practice? What's the best practice since we don't have a lot of evidence for some stuff? Um, what do you do? That kind of thing. Another website that I recommend actually everyone check out is slaveryfootprint.org. Mm -hmm. um, they, I think it, it, it sort of sort of wets your whistle. I would say of, oh, I need to learn more. You realize how you at an individual level, just living your daily life, doing your best, you know, self-care, be nice to others, you're still participating mm. from the moment you wake up and use your toothpaste. Um, it helps you start to think about, well, where did my potatoes come from and who picked them? Um, and even if it's not trafficking, was it exploitation where they paid a living wage? Um, were they safe working conditions? And then at the end, it's a little terrifying. It tells you like, well, you have 41 slaves working for you. And you're like, what? I just, but I, <laughs> how, you know? Yeah. And so every now and again, I do take it just to see, I mean, I'm always trying to work on my footprint, um, carbon and human. And, you know, the number goes down a little, it doesn't change that much, but then they don't just like depress you. They also tell you how you can contribute to having less folks um, who are exploited participating in your life in ways that you don't even, you know, know. Um, and so it does, it does, you know, offer you different uh, vendors of purchasing products, et cetera. And I'll, I'll be honest, I think something that is troubling and the reason that I really do focus on primary prevention and thinking about history mm -hmm. as our guide forward, right? You look back to move forward with purpose um, is, only people of a certain economic means can actually participate in an economy that supports a living wage, right? So it, it is this cycle that was purposefully created 
so that the people of wealth have, they have a choice. They can choose how they spend their money and where they spend their money. But after that, below a certain economic bracket, you have to buy what's available to you. And so you are potentially contributing to the oppression of another person who's in a similar boat or maybe a, like a less great boat than yours. And you're not wanting to, but are you really going to be able to afford 250 pair of dollar shoes? Like it's to pay someone else a living wage. It's, it's really tough. It's really tough. Um, well, one, so I will, I will put both of those websites in the listen notes. So um, for the listeners, you can definitely check those out. But um, speaking about a living wage, it also makes me mm. think about the conversation that we've been having about essential workers, right? Um, during COVID-19 and what does essential mean mm-hmm. um, and how these essential workers are, are most high risk, you know, patient population, if you will, during mm-hmm. COVID-19. Um, and, and the other thing that we were talking about economics, because the economics of this particular population can be tenuous, like you said, you, you, know, you might not know where your next check is coming from. Exactly. I wonder if you can speak to, and, and some of the concerns have been raised around violence in these situations of coercion in these situations, because you're already um, talking about a population that's kind of living on the fringe um, and in, in these uncertain times. Do you, have you seen any difference in the human trafficking numbers uh, over the past few months or anything you're particularly worried about um, going forward? Well, I would say it's tough for me to, in the ED to say the numbers are rising. Um, As you know, we mentioned before, it is invisible as a, it is a crime. So it is purposely invisible. (laughs) Um, It's not like traffickers are coming forward saying, Hey, I got two, I got 10, like just so y'all can keep track. All right, cool. I'm gonna go back to it. That's not happening. Right. It's very true. So it's, it's purposefully invisible. And then it's invisible in the sense that maybe as the patient that I'm seeing or the client that someone else is seeing or just the person, they don't even necessarily use or know that term. So they just know life's hard. I'm doing the best I can. I'm in a bad situation, but it is what it is. I'm doing what I can, right? So they may not even use that term or identify in that way. Um, or they do know it's trafficking. They, they know, maybe they don't know it's, it's trafficking. Maybe they know it's a bad situation and that they should quote unquote get out, but they can't for you know whatever those reasons are that are keeping them in right. um, that are coercive. Um, they're sort of stuck. So it's hard to count those numbers. So I'll caveat with that, number one. Number two, um, I don't think that we're out of the woods yet. Um, so it's, I think, a little too soon to count the hatch chickens. Right. Um, I do see increased vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Logically, I think we all must if we're giving it even just the littlest bit of thought, right? If you are suddenly unemployed and you were living paycheck to paycheck, <laughs> and we have over 40 million people now on unemployment and, and that quote unquote safety net system wasn't built for this volume or this duration. Right. And then what about all the people who aren't eligible to apply for unemployment and unemployment is not like a magical, like fairy godmother wand where now you live in a castle, right? right. So things are still tough. Um, the, the vulnerability to be exploited has increased um, moratoriums on evictions, are constantly being fought on both sides to, you know, on the landlord side to not have that, to end it, um, and to extend it for those who need to stay in. But it still doesn't answer the real question of what's, what's going to happen when the moratorium ends, whenever it ends. Do, yeah. does, is suddenly that, that all that back rent owed on day two? Is it owed a year later? Yeah. Are you being paid twice as much as you were so that you can now pay last year's rent and this year's rent? 
you know, how does this all work out? And so then we have to ask ourselves, how do people survive? Because people survive, right? That is the nature of life. That is what people, your, your instinct, generally speaking, is survival, especially if you're not just taking care of you. You got to take care of other folks. They're relying on you. You end up in underground economies sometimes. You end up accepting offers that you would not have otherwise because you know you could do better. You might not be able to do better now. Um, you might be afraid to access um, public benefits because then you become a public charge and then you can't stay or you might get deported, right? It just, it all spirals and it's worse in, in a system where these things were all purposefully created and now they're being purposefully expanded and revised to be worse. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, trafficking at a, at a U.S. level, I would imagine there is probably more of it. Um, I cannot say that I know that for sure. Right. Well, um, I usually <laughs> like to transition us to something more optimistic. Let's try. Let's try. <laughs> um, but that was kind of heavy. So I'm trying to get us to a better place. Um, but I mean, I think to your point earlier, I think, you know, if as, as an individual, we can educate ourselves, right? Um, as clinicians, we can be a little bit more vigilant about trying to see things that aren't necessarily apparent. Um, I, I guess maybe as an advocate, maybe we can we can kind of transition and in there. Um, you you spoke some about what you can do in the advocacy role if mm-hmm. you want to make change, and you speak into college students, which are very influential right now. Right, <laughs> the young people are out in the streets um, yeah. right now in record numbers, and I think something different than we we've been used to seeing in recent years. But um, I am optimistic that they will keep pushing forward to, to have some, some real change. Um, so in the, in the advocacy world, where um, do you think people can best put their efforts or do, are there any policies in the pike that you think people need to support or, or start? Um, you know, we, we didn't, I mentioned in your bio that you started the Hill Trafficking Incorporation, but mm-hmm. are, is that an experience that, you know, more people need to get out and, and start things? Just, I mean, any, you can go any direction you want to kind of go. Okay. A lot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say that, I mean, on the one hand, yes, if you think there's a hole somewhere and it needs to be filled and you have the skill set and the team around you to fill that hole, fill the hole. But I don't think that creating things is like organizations and NGOs and all that is necessarily necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually think that from a, when I think about primary prevention of trafficking, I think of Black Lives Matter and Native Lives Matter and Trans Lives Matter and Mother Earth Matters. These are the things I think of as primary prevention because these are the systems that have been, there are systems that have been put in place to tell us, show us that black lives don't matter, that mother earth doesn't matter, that trans lives are irrelevant, that all of these things um, don't matter, that all of these people don't matter. And trafficking is a symptom, is one symptom. It's an awful term and existence and thing, but it's actually the minority of experience of most of the folks that I just named in those groups, right? although we are disproportionately represented um, as trans, as native, as black, as any, any person of color group, any sort of dis, disenfranchised, marginalized, purposefully marginalized groups, um, disproportionately either vulnerable to or represented among trafficking survivors. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, 
I think the work that is that people are finally not finally there are people who've been doing this for centuries right but the folks who are jumping on the bandwagon they're finally hopping on that's the work that needs doing so if you're doing you know defund the police work if you're doing transformative justice work that is anti-trafficking work. If you're doing anti-poverty work, that is anti-trafficking work. Mm -hmm. If you're doing accessible housing work, because at the end of the day, why do people get trafficked? Because they had one option and another option and they were both crappy, right? Right. So it's not about, oh, now that we see that this person is being trafficked, we can swoop in and quote unquote rescue or help them. Because if you don't, as a society, if we as a community, as people don't eradicate the underlying problems that drove and pushed people to those situations. I mean, it's kind of like me giving you the hyperkalemia cocktail and not trying to figure out what's wrong with your kidneys. Right. <laughs> you're just, you're just band-aiding a hemorrhage and that cycle will continue. Um, and it is, it is an old problem. So as you did say at the beginning, you know, this isn't, we've, we've repackaged it and rebranded it and named it this new thing in 2000. Um, when we got the Trafficking Victims Protection Act. I think the, the hope that I have now is we've been having this problem for centuries, not just the United States, but imperialism has certainly spread it to specific communities and, and places. Um, we have this thing and now we have a term for it and now we're, we're sort of in theory all on board, right? The UN is like, let's get rid of this. Um, how do we do it? We do it with the work that is happening now at a louder volume and we should continue to amplify the voices of those leaders who have lived experience not just the academic ivory tower folks indeed um and i think that was a great way to contextualize it in closing and that because we, we're talking about health equity right and the key mm. word is equity and so when mm. we, we bring everybody up together and hopefully operate on the same playing field then we will hopefully eradicate these issues, like you said, that are a symptom of the bigger problem. So yeah. and that's what we're here to talk about. And hopefully um, we'll keep inching our way forward and making, making the world a little bit better for those who come behind us. So yes. But with that, thank you. I appreciate you taking the time to join us today and share your journey and your insight. Um, you were uh, quite inspiring, of course, and informative. Um, and I hope our listeners learned a little bit and are motivated to um, some advocacy work out of it. So thank, thank you. you. Thanks for having me.